We're continuing in the study of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. This morning I'm going to begin with reading the passage because I realized halfway through the sermon last week that I had not read the passage and I was referring to places in the passage, hoping you had your Bibles in front of you, or at least your phones with your Bibles going on them in front of you. Um, I hope that's why your phones were in front of you. Um, But I'm going to start this morning by reading the passage. And again, as, as we look at this, I'm going to start actually in verse 12 instead of verse 14, because this, this sermon is, is framed between two questions. And it's critical that we understand what Peter is addressing and why. So let me put the passage in front of us. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, so that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father, we do stand in awe that you have demonstrated in that moment of time the fulfillment of the promises you made. And we stand looking back, recognizing that we see a large perspective, sometimes so large that it's difficult to be able to make sure we understand the importance of the different parts. But Father, we do thank you for this account of how you acted in the work of building kingdom, that Jesus came, that he was manifested as the Messiah, that you attested to his identity through the miracles and the works that you did through him, that we have this account of those who were his disciples and ministered with him, as well as those who were witnesses. And in spite of being witnesses, were those who pursued his death. And Lord, we recognize that we bear responsibility for the death of Christ with them. We pray that you would use this sermon not only to challenge and to bring to greater faith or bring to faith those that you added that day, but that you would work in our hearts, that you would work in our minds, that you would continue that work of sanctification, that you, by bringing us to faith, by giving us your spirit, began. And then we pray, Lord, that we, with all of those who follow Christ, would be agents of change to build your kingdom and bring honor and glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So again, I want to bring into focus the context of this sermon. Um, and in doing that, I want to reflect again on that quote on the front of the worship folder last week from Pope Francis. This really is the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Pope Francis says, to put it simply, the Holy Spirit bothers us because he moves us. He makes us walk. He pushes the church to go forward. And we are like Peter at the transfiguration. Ah, how wonderful to be here all together. But don't bother us. We, don't, we want the Holy Spirit to doze off. We want to domesticate the Holy Spirit. And that's no good because he's God. He is the wind which comes and goes, and you do not know where. He is the power of God. He is the one who gives us consolation and strength to move forward. 
but to move forward. And this bothers us. It's so much nicer to be comfortable. Those who saw the disciples experiencing the presence of the Spirit and speaking the word that Christ had given to them in languages they did not understand came at that point to say, what does this mean? It's easy for us to lose sight of that wonder. It's easy for us to lose sight of the amazing things God has done. In fact, it's so easy for us as we see that the Spirit bothers and moves us to build kingdom because Jesus gave us the Spirit through his atoning sacrifice and his resurrection. We lose sight of the fact that Jesus is Lord. We recognize that he saves us, but sometimes we lose sight of the fact that he gives us faith not simply to repent, not simply to receive new life, but to grow, to battle against our indwelling sin, to become more Christ-like so that we become agents of change. E.C.'s taking us through the book of Acts to look at this revolutionary action. And if we don't understand the nature of this revolution, we, we sometimes forget completely that it's a revolution. Our lives have been turned topsy-turvy. I love what, what Keller says in the beginning of the bulletin this week. Let me read that. Because this is the statement of where we are. The difference between knowing Christ and knowing the power of his resurrection, says Keller, is the difference between knowing a person and resembling a person. It's not about relationship, but about supernatural character growth. When Paul says, I want to know him, it means I want to be with him. But when he says, I want the power of his resurrection, it means I want to be just like him. Look at the deadness in your life. Look at the anger. How is that going to be turned into forgiveness? Look at the insecurity. How is that going to be turned into confidence? Look at the self-centeredness. How is that going to be turned into compassion and generosity? How? The answer is that the dead stuff gets taken over by the Spirit of God. The minute you decide to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It's the power of the resurrection, the same thing that raised Jesus from the dead. We are called to new life, not for our own benefit. Certainly we do benefit, but we're called to new life for the kingdom, for the glory of God. And so today, as we look at the second of four messages on Paul's sermon, Peter's sermon, excuse me. Being reformed, Paul is sort of the first apostle to my lips. Peter's sermon. And we see again that place of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because it is Jesus who gives us the Spirit. It is the central event of humanity. It is, as we have come to understand, the crux moment, and crux simply means cross. 
It is so central to our experience that we have made words that reflect that that we lose sight of because we simply use them and lose sight of where they come from. I want you to think for a moment that you're amongst those who are listening to Peter and you hear the words, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. We might sit from 2,000 years distance and think, well, I'm glad I'm not the ones hearing those words from Peter. No, we, we didn't cry out, crucify him to Pontius Pilate, the lawless man who killed him. But it was our sin. We sit here today, the reason for Christ's death. When you sin, big, small, minuscule, your sin is the reason Jesus died. We become kind of callous about that. It's the norm. It's easy. It's not that bad. I mean, after all, look at them. Even in the moment where we hear those words, we tend to want to shirk the reality and think about, well, I'm glad I wasn't the one who cried out, crucify him. We were. When you wrestle with temptation and give in. And in light of that, I want you to think about what an incredible, amazing love that God redeems. I want you to see fresh that amazing mystery that the second person of the Trinity would become human. I mean, can you imagine for a moment being omnipresent everywhere in a universe that we can't begin to understand the boundaries? He holds it in his hand. And then he's in the womb of Mary, bounded in her uterus, almost invisible in his smallness and limited because he loves us. Then bearing the indignity of diapers. I don't remember diapers, not my own. I remember my kids' diapers a lot. Sometimes I still remember the diapers in the nursery. And it's kind of an indignity to have to change somebody else's poopy little diapers. And if you begin to think about that nasty experience and recognize, oh my goodness, that's poop. 
but I can wash my hands and be done with it. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, went through the indignities of pregnancy, was born, was completely dependent upon Mary and Joseph because he loves me. And that's not the worst of it. He has to live in total dependence. He lives under the law he created. He fulfills that law. He's sometimes questioned by his parents. Can you imagine being Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, growing up as a child, becoming a man, and being questioned by your parents for whether or not you did the right thing? A 12-year-old in the temple when he stayed in Jerusalem and his mother questioned him. We get a little affronted by the fact that he speaks to Mary with a sense of power and authority and says, what did you expect? We want to kind of defend Mary because we recognize our own parental issues and we recognize what it feels like to not know where your child is. She blamed Jesus. And then you have the religious leaders who are sinning and condemn Jesus. Whom you crucified. Brothers and sisters, that's us. And so Jesus died. But the point of this section of Peter's message isn't his death, it's his resurrection. God raised him to new life. David, a thousand years before, prophesied that the Messiah could not be held in death. Part of what happens in this section is the Jews didn't understand the kingdom Jesus was bringing. They couldn't conceive of the Messiah dying any more than I imagine they could conceive of the second person of the Trinity becoming an infant. They didn't understand the kingdom. And yet David foretold the resurrection, which meant death. The disciples saw and gave witness of the resurrection. They say here, God raised him. And we're witnesses. We tell you ourselves that we saw Jesus raised. The plan was always there. And in fact, if we think about the road to Emmaus, where the disciples were so despondent because the Messiah, or at least the one that they had anticipated was the Messiah, had died. And they were leaving Jerusalem. Because it was all over. He'd been defeated. And Jesus met with them and walked with them to Emmaus and explained to them all of Scripture. And how throughout the entirety of Scripture, the Messiah's ministry was foretold. We lose sight of this. We take it for granted. We get stuck in the day-to-day -day living that causes us to lose sight of the wonder.
And Peter finishes this section of his sermon by talking about because he was exalted. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that which was prophesied in the Old Testament and by Jesus throughout his ministry, having received the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Spirit exploded into day-to-day life. They heard the gospel in their own language in the temple. And they were amazed and perplexed and said, what does this mean? Brothers and sisters, we need to be amazed and perplexed. Do you understand that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16. We have the Spirit. And the thing that the Spirit is given to accomplish is not our comfort. He is the comforter. He does comfort. But that's not the sum total of his ministry. It's not the total of our ministry. Jesus says in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And that's a part of what the Holy Spirit is calling us to do. And that's what the disciples do here in Jerusalem. This is the first part of the fulfillment of Jesus' commission. But there are more parts. And brothers and sisters, we look at Galatians chapter 3. You may think, what do we look at in Galatians chapter 3? It's a good thing that you ask. Paul, and it was Paul this time, speaks to the Galatians and said, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We receive the Spirit. Peter says here, everyone who believes. Joel says, poured out on all flesh. And all flesh means all who believe in Jesus. Even those, like we talked about last week, who we might be uncomfortable with becoming part of the body of Christ. But it's not simply the reception of the Spirit for the comfort of the believer. It is the reception of the Spirit, Paul goes on to say, having begun by the Spirit, are you being made perfect by human effort? Or, more aptly, if you look at the Greek, by the flesh. Are you growing in righteousness because you choose to be righteous? Or are you growing in righteousness because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life? Our sin crucified Jesus. He gives in response to that the Holy Spirit. Not so that we feel good, not so that we have hope, not so that we can say, well, I'm going to heaven, so that we become righteous, so that we grow in our hatred for sin and grow in our love for righteousness. John 14, 15, a verse that Jesus speaks to his disciples after the Lord's Supper as he's going to Gethsemane, preparing for his crucifixion. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
we're witnesses, and that's certainly a part of our calling, and sometimes we feel it's a little bit too difficult to fulfill. Who did you last speak to about Jesus? When did you last utter his name outside of church? Who spoke to you about Jesus? So witnesses is a big part of our calling, but it is also that we grow in our holiness as an expression of love for Jesus. Not because we want to grow in our holiness, but because we love Jesus. The Holy Spirit teaches us of Christ. The Holy Spirit confronts us with sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms us. Having begun by the Spirit, are you being made perfect by the flesh? No. It's the Spirit who's at work in us. But we Reformed, we Presbyterians, are sometimes having a difficulty with Trinity, and we think more of a duality. We, we really readily talk about the Father and the Son, but we sometimes lose sight of the Spirit. The Spirit is who Jesus gives to the church, to us. But there's a third component of the work of the Spirit in us. We are to be agents of change. In ourselves, as we grow in our righteousness, as we grow in sanctification, but as I prayed in the pastoral prayer, the prayers of the people, the giving of the Holy Spirit is so that we can know where God is calling us to act now. And the thing I want to challenge you with this week, this week, is where is the Spirit calling you to focus? What do you need to see that you might otherwise pass over? In you, in others, in the world. Having seen that, what is the Spirit calling you to do? What difference will your being the temple of the Holy Spirit make in you this week? How will you live in a way that honors Christ? We're called to be agents of kingdom. We're called to be agents of change. We're called to grow in righteousness, and it may be that God convicts you of a pattern of sin in your life, and you set yourself to really wrestling with and battling that, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. It may be that he shows you something outside of yourself, maybe in family, maybe in church, maybe in community. But there are so many different issues where the spirit calls us to act. He bothers us. He moves us forward. It's a little irritating to me that I need to read that from somebody outside of my church tradition. But I'm really glad to hear it. And I pray that you will be too. Let's pray. Spirit, we come to you, as you've already come to us, poured out because of Christ's work and because of the Father's love. 
And I pray that you would make us Trinitarians. That we would recognize what an incredible gift it is not to have to seek you, but to be your home. To recognize the profound reality that you, Christ, have redeemed us and that you, Spirit, are transforming us. And I pray that we would be a people who bring you pleasure. I pray that we would be those who honor you and who are ready to take action. Start at whatever place you need to start, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make us new. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.